Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 19. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he migrated to the land of promise, as if it were given, it, as if it were foreign, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was waiting for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive when she was barren and past the age, since she considered the one who had made the promise to be faithful. So from one, and him as good as dead, were fathered offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as uncountable as the sand of the seashore. These all died in faith without receiving the things promised, but they saw them and welcomed them from afar, and they confessed that they were strangers and sojourners on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If indeed they had been thinking about where they had come from, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they yearn for a better land, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Yes, he who had received the promise was offering up his one and only son, the one about whom it was said, Through Isaac offspring shall be named for you. He reasoned that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, and in a sense he did receive him back from there. Thank you, Tracy. This is the second Shabbat in a series on faith. And um, last Shabbat, we began to look at what, what kind of strange quantity or quality faith is. Because I imagine if we were to go around here, we would get as many opinions about what faith is as there are people here. And faith for us is very central because we describe our, ourselves as believers. And by the way, biblically, in the New Testament, believers doesn't mean those who believed once. But believers has the sense of those who continue to believe, which means that faith is something that requires us to be in an ongoing process, um, and that it requires us to grow in it. So first of all, I wanted to do a little bit of review and talk about what faith is. Obviously, faith is not hoping, wishing, Crossing fingers, I had somebody, uh, one of the kids come up after the service and uh, they listened and they heard something and they showed me cross fingers and I was very gratified to know that they got something out of the sermon. Um, and some of what the Word of God tells us here is not easy to get our arms around. So last Shabbat, we began to tease out some of the basic ideas of what it really means, what faith really means. And 
Beginning in verse 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, kind of hard to get our arms around that, but the, the word for certain or evidence literally means evidence that is admissible in court. In other words, if you somehow... God penetrates through the titanium plates that exist here and conveys something to us and we hear and understand and have the sense of, okay, this is really God speaking. Then we have the deep bedrock conviction that what we just heard is something that is solid and is bedrock, not something that is there today and gone tomorrow. And I, I'm assuming, I'm hoping that each one of us here has had at least one experience where you heard from God somehow, and you knew that it was God, and you knew that what you discerned or understood was something that was going to, going to come about and you had the conviction and you just sat back and rested in it because you knew it was just a matter of time that that was going to happen. You know, I've shared once before that um, in my previous life in science, I um, was struggling because as much as I loved it, I knew it really wasn't something that God had planned for me, and I tried this, tried that, tried the other, sent out resumes, read uh, what color is your parachute, and et cetera, et cetera, and sent out resumes and, and, and had power interviews, and none of that happened, and I eventually got the basic reality that, okay, uh, there is a door, and it is firmly shut, and God hasn't opened it, and if I try to bust through again, I will get nothing more other than sore shoulder. And I realized that, and I sat back, and I said, Okay, God, you are in control. Uh, fussing, fuming, arguing, etc. But I did say that. And one time I was, I remember really struggling with it. And faith, by the way, is a struggle. Faith is a battle. Let me say that again. Faith is a battle. And I remember one day just kind of being worked up inside and I, I was working in the lab at that point. Everybody was gone and I had the opportunity just to talk with God and I heard, not audibly, but I had a clear sense from God that in short order he was going to move me on to a different position. And because it was very clear, very emphatic, I received it and I said, okay, God, I'm going to hang in there and wait for you to do whatever it is that you have in mind. And within a couple of months, my boss came to me and, and he was very, very uh, apologetic, horribly apologetic, and told me that he couldn't keep me uh, because the funds were not renewed. And uh, 
I felt a basic sense of peace, shalom inside, because I knew that this was part of God's plan and he had been working. But before that, I had this certainty, um, bedrock certainty that God was going to move and do something and that it was a matter of time. That's what faith is, folks, is somehow having this discernment and sense from God that he is working, he has things in mind for you, and that as you learn to wait and depend on him, that he will bring it about. And you learn then to sit back and trust confidently that God will actually do that. And by the way, this is my, my faith for Yeshua Tzion, is that we will become more fully established, that we will be an equipping center, a place where spiritual babies can be born and nurtured, and where people can come and be equipped to be Yeshua's disciples, followers of Messiah, and that the word of God that he has given us and will be giving us will spread outwardly. I believe that's part of the plan for us. And I have no doubt that it will come about, not because I say so, but because I believe that this is the, the word that God has spoken, not just to me, but to a number of us who have been here and who have been serving faithfully. And, and so because of that, we have faith. And that is the difference between faith and fantasy. Fantasy is our hoping and wishing, having grand thoughts. Faith is based on the word of God. Faith also brings about God's smile. In verse 2, we're told that because of the faith, the ancients, the, the men and women of, of God were commended. In other words, God looked at their life and validated who they were as men and women of faith. Because they had learned to grow in faith. And then verse 6, we're told, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word in Greek that's used there for seek means to exert considerable effort in wanting to learn something. In other words, when you reach out to God, do you do that half-heartedly? Because you don't know what else to do, um, because you are needing something and you're expecting God to deliver and you put in uh, a dollar in the God candy machine and you're expecting that instantly some kind of an answer will come? Or do you learn to look to God diligently over a period of time again and again and say, God, I'm going to trust you for your answers? And a basic part of that is that relationship that you have with God. That when you come to God, you, you have this confidence. You have this confidence. A, he welcomes me. He hears my prayers. And he blesses me, not because I'm cute and clever, 
but he blesses me because I diligently seek him. That's faith, folks. And yes, it includes our failures. And I, for one, am delighted that the Word of God gives us the portrayal of the men and women of God, warts and all. Just think what would happen if you would see these people as models, absolute models of perfection. Wouldn't you want to close the book and say, I'm going to get something else? You know, one of the self-help books of which there's a multitude. But the Word of God gives us the picture of their life as it really is. And so we see that for them, faith was a struggle and faith included failure. And I, for one, am grateful that the Word of God shows us the failure of God's people because through failures is how we learn some of the deepest most profound lessons that we need for life. Why? Because it makes the greatest impact on us. As we go through the hard times and we blow it, and then we learn to recognize the mercy and grace of God, and then we learn to take the steps that He shows us and hopefully avoid the stupidities, the foolishness that we all make from time to time. So here, this chapter, we see the gold standard for what it means to follow God by faith. However, we don't, we don't have 24-karat gold. We have gold that has impurities in it. And we looked last Shabbat at Abel and, and, um, and Enoch and Noah and today, of course, we come to, to Abraham, the father of faith. Abraham is defined as someone who is willing to dive into God's safety net. That's basically one of the functional definitions of what faith is. You realize that you need to take a step and you see nothing underneath you and you realize you have to take a dive, and on some level, emotionally, you say, okay, am, am I going to emerge? You know, somewhat like um, Indiana Jones in the uh, search for the Holy Grail. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, well, you can go and see it. The Holy Gr the, 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 the uh, chalice, supposedly the cup from which Yeshua drank, was there, and there's a gulf, and he is ex expected to take a step and cross what looks like nothing. And he hesitates, and he eventually realizes he has to take a step, and he's convinced that he is going to plop into some kind of utter nothingness, and yet he takes a step, and what he didn't realize, that we, the omniscient viewers, recognize was that there was a... Um, a plastic step or sets of steps that took him from there to the to the chalice. Abraham did that, as um, Dr. Dallaire mentioned earlier today. It's like getting on an airplane, like Charlie getting on an airplane and uh, being given uh, no instructions. 
and being told at some point when you're in the air, you will be given the directions of where you're actually going. Abraham did that. Um, we all, at one time or another, are called to do that as well. God Almighty doesn't see fit to always give us a complete set of blueprints. And I know that's highly un-American of him. But sometimes he demands that we take steps that require basic faith. Not in, in a generic sense, but faith, folks, biblically, first and foremost, is based on our relationship with God. Because we know who he is, we're willing to take those steps. This is something that 25 years ago was the case for us as we, we were, Joy and I were um, contemplating life beyond seminary. What was there on the screen was a, a position in Boston to work with a ministry, and that's where I was headed. We, we were headed 25 years ago. And um, God had different ideas. And the notion of staying here in Denver and being part of a new congregation was, frankly, something like stepping off into God's safety net or stepping off a cliff or something. And God does that with each of us. He brings us to points in our life when we are when we are challenged and expected to make a basic decision am i going to trust god or am i going to try and figure things out on my own and try to control and manage and massage reality and we have this basic fork in the road that requires us to say okay god i trust you well enough to where i'm going to make a decision that is purely dependent on who you are, not on who I am. Abraham does that. He takes the trip. And part of um, the picture for him is an ongoing life of relationship with God. And um, because he learns to trust God. Scripture defines Abraham as a man of faith. And let me just read to you a couple of statements from the book of Romans, chapter 4. Abraham believed in God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. In other words, he speaks things into reality. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Without weakening in faith, he faced the facts that he was, uh, for all practical purposes, he was dead reproductively. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in faith and gave glory to God. Being fully persuaded, fully convinced that God had the power to do what he had promised. Incredible relationship with God. We see a number of occasions that Abraham responds to God. First of all, in obedience. When God calls, he responds. He endeavors to worship God uh, in a number of places. In chapter 12 and 13, we see that 
Abraham stops, builds an altar, calls on God, worships God. In other words, he takes time out of, from his schedule to say, everything else is on hold. This is my time with God, and I'm going to sit or stand and have this time to worship God, and everything else is going to be off screen. Now, that's, of course, part of the challenge for us because we've got kids, we've got work, we've got school, etc., etc., and much of the time we feel like, God, I'm too busy, and I'm going to be nice today. I'll give you 10 minutes. And the 10 minutes will be dedicated to me rattling through my wish list or my laundry list of the things that I absolutely need from you and I'm expecting you to deliver. And that is going to be how I relate to you today, tomorrow, the day after. Fortunately, we don't see that with Abram. We see a life that is fuller, a relationship with God. But for me personally, what, what is most inspiring, and I know you may look at me, think I'm a little mishugi, a little off. What inspires me the most is, is the fact that Scripture describes in great detail Abraham's failures. Earlier, we looked at Ishmael that God used. It wasn't exactly a great act of faith. God used it. But then there are other instances where Abraham takes the truth and bends it until the truth screams. In other words, he, doesn't, he is not exactly truthful. On a couple of occasions, about 20 years apart in, in chapter 12 and then chapter 20, they leave Canaan and, and they travel once to Egypt, once to what is now Gaza. And uh, people find... Sarah, unbelievably attractive. She must have been a knockout, um, even in her older years. And um, he says to her, would you please tell everybody who inquires who we are that you are my sister? Because I'm afraid that if they know, really know that you're my wife, they will come, pitch me off a cliff, and then grab you and do whatever. That's twice in, in a span of, of 20 years. Now, um, doesn't speak much for Abraham's degree of confidence in God. In fact, it seems a little cowardly and untruthful and selfish because he's willing to throw Sarah to the wolves, as it were. But it simply shows to us again and again that the men and women of God, men and women of faith, trust him, but they have their Achilles tendon. In other words, they have their areas where they struggle and, and fail. And apparently this seems to be an area for Abraham that he's having a hard time trusting God. He is able to, to leave Ur and to leave Haran, which is northwest Syria, and come to Canaan, he's able to do that. He's able to take his beloved son and offer him to God. He's able to do all these things, but he's not able to say, 
This woman is my wife. Um, and yet, Scripture doesn't give us a national inquirer kind of an approach. It doesn't park on, on the dirt. In fact, it gives us the facts of the failure, but then it, it gives us the overall greater perspective of how the mercy and grace of God covers when we do stupid things. Aren't you glad? So, for example, David is described as a man of God's own heart. He is not described as a murderer and an adulterer, even though he committed murder, even though he committed adultery. God looks at the full picture of his life and says, this is who David was, this is who Abraham was. And hopefully for each one of us, he, he'll be able to see not only our failures, but see the fact that we have a heart that desires to know God more fully and a heart that desires to take those steps, sometimes baby steps of faith. And God sees us and knows us, and as Hebrews 11 tells us, he commends us. In other words, he validates what takes place in our life. And, and we have God's smile. Not because he whitewashes and ignores our sins and our weaknesses, but because he knows their overall, overall perspective of what takes place in our life. Now, part of the picture with Abram is we assume that he sits at the entrance of his tent with his cell phone and his uh, apps uh, for worship, and he plays them over and over and over again and has these amazing conversations with God and listens to Scripture and et cetera, et cetera. Um, to use the vernacular, Abraham had a life. He lived for 175 years. That's a long time. And the number of times that Abraham actually has these intense dialogues with God is very limited. You can count on the fingers of one hand all the times that God appears to Abraham and has, have the, has these amazing conversations. What we don't understand is the fact that Abraham is a busy man, that he is, in a sense, a businessman and a general. Now, I, I know that the notion of Abraham getting in his car and commuting to work and sitting at the computer and or having teleconferencing or traveling out of town doesn't really register with us. But Abraham was immensely wealthy. Scripture says that he had flocks and herds of cattle and sheep and donkeys and camels and servants of one kind or another. Now, where did he get all that? Well, some of it he might have gotten from mom and dad. But what is very clear when you look at the account in Genesis is that Abraham was busy actively involved in the accumulation of wealth. Let me read to you one statement in Genesis 12. Abraham took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. Where did he get all that wealth? 
And here's a nice Hebrew word with guttural pronunciation, rechush. Can you say rechush? Okay, we'll have to work on that. That's wealth that is accumulated through commerce. Meaning that somehow in the culture of his day, Abraham was involved in wheeling and dealing in acquiring gold and silver and animals and also in having servants come and work for him. Now we're told later on, uh, we're told that Abraham had a second command, Eliezer. Probably as time goes on, Eliezer becomes more and more active and has a greater greater role in managing Abraham's estate. But it's, to me anyway, it's very clear that Abraham is busy. Um, in chapter 14 of Genesis, we're told that he recruits 318 fighting men that were born in his house. Now, do the math. If somebody was born in someone's house, well, you have to have mom and dad. So you have mom and dad and the young gentleman who is, who is a fighting man and probably brother or sister. And if you were to extrapolate, you're probably looking at a household of 1,000 or 2,000 people that were all under Abraham's roof. He somehow had to work hard in order to manage that. So Abram, the businessman. Now, Abram, the general. We don't typically think of him as a general. But if, again, in chapter 14, if you were to look at chapter 14 of, of Genesis, there's a battle th that's taking place, a, a pretty um, extensive battle. Uh, the short version is that you have uh, several kings who rule over a portion of area that included Sodom and Gomorrah. And the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with some of his buddies, decided to rebel. They had had enough. And so the other kings that came as a confederation to attack Sodom, and they conquered it, and they took control of of the people in Sodom, including Abram's nephew, Lot. And um, somebody uh, uh, hears, uh, excuse me, somebody from Sodom manages to escape, and he comes and tells Abram. And in chapter 14 of Genesis, verse 14, we're told that Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men from his, uh, born in his household, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, let's recognize the fact that Abraham at this point is probably in his 80s. Okay? And we're talking about pursuit. He doesn't get in his Learjet and fly anywhere. We're talking about him probably either walking or riding a donkey and the distance from where he was, modern-day uh, Nablus probably, to the northern part of Israel, somewhere around 120 miles. What does that mean? Well, it's going to be involving 
several days worth of travel and it begins with night action it begins the process of planning and organizing this this um, counter attack to these kings at night and uh, in verse 15 of chapter 14 we see that he is actively involved in strategizing and dividing his men who goes where and he routed them in other words defeated those kings pursuing them as far as Hobah north of Damascus and if you were to look at the language here as some of us can praise God it is it is uh, it's full of action boom 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 he divided he routed he pursued and 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 you have this old man in his 80s recruiting 300 plus of his fighting men sitting down strategizing dividing who will go where and then and then pers- proceeding then to chase the enemy for 120 some miles and then he doesn't stop he oversees the recovery process he recovers all the goods and brings back his relative lot and his possession so if you were to take that and also Abraham's involvement in commerce you see that in lots of ways he doesn't fit our spiritual definition of someone who did nothing all day long but prayed and strummed his guitar. Why am I saying that? Not to minimize his relationship with God by any, by any stretch, but simply to, to point out the fact that there was a lot in Abraham's life. He was a busy man. He was an active man. And God was involved with him not only during those few times that he had that special experience with God, but God was involved with him through all the busyness of the commerce and and the arranging of the battle and so on and so forth. So my point simply is, we, you and I, are in lots of ways like Abraham. And no, we don't have a thousand, I, I don't think any of us here have a thousand people under our roof and we don't have flocks and etc etc but the point is most of our life is most of our life takes place in the arena not of what we consider spiritual god's house etc but most of our life takes place in what we would consider secular And that's a problem, folks. Why is it a problem? Because it implies that God is only in control when we are in spiritual settings or what we think spiritual settings, which means that the rest of our life we somehow consign to somebody else other than to God. Now, biblically and Jewishly and so on, God is El Elyon, God Most High. God is over everything. And if we really understand that, that our life of faith means that we welcome God into every area of endeavor in our life. Every area, our family, our work, our schooling, 
our relationships, all. We welcome God's rule, invite him and his counsel, his wisdom, his instruction for us, how he wants us to follow and serve him in all of these settings. Because what we forget, folks, is each one of us is God's ambassador in the settings where he places us. And so what we want to say in the morning when we get up is say, Lord, would you please come with me as I go to work? So that even when someone cuts me off and I want to, I, I want to repay their kindness by giving them a symbol using one of my fingers, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to honor you and use the long commute or short commute that I have not just to think of all the things I want to do and who did me dirt or etc. But I want to devote that time to engaging in dialogue with you and conversation with you and listening to what you may have to say to me. And then proceed with every area of our life and inviting God's rule, God's control, God's instruction for us and learning to trust God for the best that he has for each of us in each of these different areas. Hopefully, you live long enough, you get the fact that maybe, just maybe, God is smarter than you, and that maybe, just maybe, God has more power and the ability to set things in order in ways that you never dreamed of and couldn't even figure out. That's what faith is about, folks. It's not thinking deep spiritual thoughts somewhere in the stratosphere. Yes, it involves a basic agreement about who God is and the fact that Yeshua came and died and rose again and is at work in our life, redeeming us. But, folks, faith is practical. It means that you invite God into areas of your life consistently, sequentially, area after area after area, and you say, God, would you please come, take control. That's what faith is about, folks. It's active. It is active. Scripturally, faith is always active. You see that, for example, with here in Hebrews 11, where we see that the statements that are made in Hebrews 11, 8, 9, 11, and 17 are all associated with action. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went, got off his tush and took steps. By faith, he made his home in the promised land a place that was full of strangers. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past the age of childbearing, was empowered, enabled to become a father. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as sacrifice. In each of these situations, Abraham trusts God and takes action. 
in World War II, there was a very famous saying by a chaplain on a Navy boat. He, he made the following statement, praise God and pass the ammunition. Faith is active. It, it, it requires choices. It requires action. It, it, it's, you can say it's like a muscle. And we're being stretched. And God puts us in those circumstances where we can either trust God and say, yes, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm, I'm scary. I'm, I, I don't understand everything. And my faith is kind of wobbly. But I'm going to trust you. Or we can say, no, uh, I'm not, this is my business, God. And we hang out a do not trespass sign for God. And so we get stretched. We get stretched by faith. And when we come to situations that we find impossible, we don't try to pump up our faith and, and, and uh, uh, grit our teeth in order to come up with more faith. We simply stop and say, Father God, my faith is wobbly. Would you please strengthen my faith? That's part of the trust relationship with God. Recognizing simply the fact that He has it all. He has it all. And we come in simple, childlike faith and say, Lord, I need the faith to be able to persevere, especially through difficult circumstances. God calls on us to hang in there. Because part of the process of growing in faith is learning to persevere rather than bailing out. Part of what we see with Abraham then is that he is the father of faith. And as God gets a hold of us and you and I learn to become people of faith and we become fathers and mothers in faith. Now you may look at yourself and say, huh, what? Me? you got to be kidding. Well, that's reality, folks. As God gets a hold of us and changes and transforms us, then he puts us in position to impact and influence people. Abraham does that. He lives 175 years. He's called to be a father of faith. He gets stretched way beyond his comfort zone. And no, we are not exactly in his shoes, but yes, we are in his shoes because we are called to live by faith. We're called to take and offer up our Isaac, you know, the things that are most precious to us. We are expected to lay them at God's feet and say, Lord, you are more important to me than this, 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 and this. And as we do that, we are commended. We have God's smile, validation, grace, and favor on us. Others see it, and they honor the Lord, and they worship Him. The result is that instead of the thorn bush, 
will grow the pine tree instead of the briars. The myrtle will grow, and this will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. This last statement came from Isaiah 55, 13. So as we prepare to conclude the service, just want to put it out there for you and simply ask you to consider the moment we'll have a time of worship in music. Just want you to consider where is your faith? How much are you willing to trust God? And yes, you perhaps have learned to trust God here in this area. Then he is inviting you and saying to you, okay, you've you got it here. Now let's work on trusting me here in this area that you currently find difficult. He's up to the task. He's able to sustain and power and bring you through those faith challenges. Let's pray. Father God, we bless you that you are faithful, that you cannot deny yourself. We thank you, Lord God, for persevering, for hanging in there with us, Lord, as we go through difficult times, as we experience failure of one kind or another, as we do stupid things. We thank you, Lord, that you don't bail out on us. Thank you for the wonderful example that we see in Abram's life. Thank you, Lord God, for the richness of his relationship with you. Thank you how he was forged in the fire of testing. Lord God, we pray for each one of us that you cause us to become men and women of faith, Lord, who know what it's like to trust you because we know who you are. Speak to us, Lord God, we pray. Cause us to understand your work in our life in the places where we live. We ask this in Yeshua's name.